San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right. Good evening, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download download the app for KFMB, 760 KFMB, you can hear us uh, on your on your phone or whatever other device. All these podcasts are commercial-free on iowamoney.com after we post them on Monday. And now time to introduce introduce the main man of the hour. He's an accomplished marathon runner. He's a best-selling author. He's a philanthropist. He's a family office expert advising several high-net-worth families. He's a CPA extraordinaire. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? Doing great, Joe. I went out and saw your favorite movie, The Wrecking Crew, (laughs) with my wife, Mary, and uh, at the lovely La Paloma Theater in Encinitas. We jogged over from our house. Isn't and it was it was quite excellent. Isn't it great? And, uh, and I love know, seeing Brian Wilson and his. You know, my mom was Brian Wilson's nurse. Yes. I can't really talk about that in public, other than well, to you're say talking it. about it right now <laughs> of the Beach Boys. But Brian did a great job. In other words, you can't as, tell uh, any stories. Can't but, tell uh, any stories. But uh, yeah, well, Denny Tedesco, as he was on the show, but a great film, yeah. great documentary. Yeah, I, I hope it. You know, it's in its fifth week here. They're holding it La Jolla. They moved it from the Ken to uh, the landmark at La Jolla Village. It's playing there, and of course, up at La Paloma. But folks, if you get a chance. Uh, get over to the sea. It's all about the great music of the 60s and the uh, studio musicians who backed up all those great hits. Incredible stuff. For anywhere from Frank Sinatra to Cher to uh, the Beach Boys and on and on and on. But um, anyway, let's see. Cubs are, uh, Padres are doing pretty well. I know they won yesterday. And um, since we're taping the show, we don't know the result yet of uh, Saturday's game. But uh, they're, they're doing respectably well. They're above 500, which is more than we could say for last April. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, hey, we've got a VIP uh, waiting to speak with us and all of you, and he's in Washington, D.C., and this gentleman served as a senior advisor to President Reagan and uh, chief of staff to First Lady Nancy Reagan. He now runs a growth strategy. We'll learn all about that, but uh, he is on the line. His name is James Rosebush. James, how are you tonight? Terrific. Happy to be with you. Well, it's a real it's a real pleasure. And I think at the outset, we should say you will be out in San Diego, May 9th, spe- speaking uh, for the LifeLoungeSD.com event uh, hosted by Tim Owens. And we can talk more about that somewhere in the interview. But I want to alert people if they want to meet you. Uh, that would be a good place to do it. So why don't we start at the beginning, born and raised where? And uh, we'll, we'll take it right up through present. How about that? <laughs> uh, thanks so much. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in the Midwest, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So a uh, good Midwestern boy, uh, but uh, and, and that was terrific. Uh, my father was 35 years with General Motors, wow. and so I've got car culture embedded in me, which hmm. I, I really enjoy very much. And uh, then I moved What'd your to dad the do East that? Coast What'd your dad and do uh, started my career working in family offices, which is basically families, wealthy families who uh, come together to uh, uh, form a, a formal way of managing their wealth and their mm-hmm. lives. And uh, that was a great uh, find for me mm-hmm. and really a calling to, to work for families and help them in a number of different ways, everything from investment management and strategy mm-hmm. to also helping them with issues related to education, 
uh, reputation, lifestyle, philanthropy, which is a particular uh, particular love of mine. Mm-hmm. And then I also uh, became the head of the Standard Oil Foundation, the foundation of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and then eventually was asked, incredibly enough, uh, with the great honor of going into the White House in 1981 to work for the president and manage his favorite domestic policy program called Private Sector Initiatives, which was the first time that there was a, a White House really focused on promoting what we call for the first time public-private partnerships, something that is a phrase that's very well known today, but it was something that we were just starting at the time. And that was this. It was the way to help find the most effective and economic solutions for solving public problems in the private sector, Mm -hmm. or to get the government and the private sector working together to have more effective solutions for everything from public housing to public education to garbage collection, anything that had been done previously by the government alone, how could we do that better by matching up the private sector mm-hmm. and, and the public sector? So that was a tremendous um, privilege for me because, I, as I learned after traveling the world with the president, this was something that was a personal passion for him and something that he had thought about for several decades before he became president, and it was something that really came out of his belief system, which is something I'm writing about in my second book about Reagan, which should come out this fall, uh, which is called uh, What Made Reagan Great and Why It Matters. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And then I was also asked to become chief of staff to the first lady and ran her uh, very ambitious uh, global a drug education program, and again had this unusual and unsought opportunity to work with the Reagans, um, very on a on a, on a very uh, close basis, and, and travel the world with them. So that just gave me an extraordinary opportunity um, to see the world through the lens of the White House, and also opportunities to to meet so many heads of state around the world and uh, to travel with them. And then lastly. Uh, when I left the White House, I started this firm called Growth Strategy because my passion is really growing companies. How do you how do you grow them? Um, how do you brand them? How do you finance them? And the outcome always has to be judged by the benchmarks of an increase in sales, revenue, earnings, goodwill. Uh, somehow, and and I've had the been blessed by having an opportunity to work with hundreds and hundreds of companies in this. Um, area. So I, I've been very fortunate in my life mm-hmm. uh, beyond what I could have imagined working in the Reagan White House and uh, then also working with hundreds of companies to help uh, and nonprofits to mm-hmm. grow them around the world. Well, you, you kind of went on fast forward here, James, because we have <laughs> – I'd like to back it up and, and start, you know, and, and find out how and why all these things happen and connect the dots a little bit. So you gave us a good a good overview, but – uh, let's back it up to Michigan. You know, where'd you go to school? And, and tell us a little bit about your your. I know your dad worked for GM, and um, so where'd you go to, to high school and college? Well, you know, it's an interesting story. You you raise uh, my dad. There were there were two things that um, my dad had a, a significant contribution to. Uh, there were many things, I'm sure, but the two other things that really stand out. My dad, in addition to being one of the most inventive and cost-saving 
uh, people at General Motors. He was always looking for a more productive way to, and he was involved in the manufacturing division of General Motors, and he was always looking for a more effective way to manufacture cars. And he shared all of that with us over the dinner table. Hmm. And it made me, this contributed to my view of how how can you do something better? How can you improve a manufacturing process? How can you uh, start up a company or, or a project to um, in, increase its value to the marketplace? And my dad always said to me, look for what the market is is, is seeking. What what are, what is the marketplace really calling for? And if you really figure that out, and you start a, a company or a service to address it, you will be successful. But you have to listen to the pulse of the marketplace. Mm. The second thing my dad taught me, what came from the fact that he was a teacher of Dale Carnegie, which is not so popular today, but is one of the foremost uh, methods of improving people's ability to communicate and to sell. Mm-hmm. And so we were his guinea pigs. I mean, we had to <laughs> attend his classes, and and uh, they were fun. But he was teaching adults, and we were kids. Um, in in his um, went with him to his programs. But from that, we learned had to learn how to communicate and how to show interest in others hmm. and to be uh, curious about other people, their lives, their beliefs, the the texture that comes along with getting to know and respecting other people, um, uh, regardless of their point of view or background. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that my dad gave me, and, and um, uh, they were a big help to me. And I'm a product of public education, so I went to public schools in Flint, Michigan, which were outstanding at the time. And then I went on to college uh, in southern Illinois, got a, a um, bachelor's in, in business, and then a graduate degree at Boston University in public affairs. Hmm. Principia College, right? What, yes. What, what city is that in? Is That that is in a tiny little, uh, like, English uh, village called Elsa, Illinois, near Alton, which is Alton, Illinois, which is an industrial city across the river from St. Louis. Wow, that's tornado country, huh? <laughs> tornado country, and right on the Mississippi. We used to watch uh, what we called the... Uh, the submarine races is the the college was on the bluffs overlooking the mighty Mississippi, and you would see these. Um, <laughs> I guess they were underground uh, currents that ran through the Mississippi River. So we would be up on the bluffs and we watch what we called submarine races because uh, you you see them along with the barges, all the barge traffic and so forth in the Mississippi. Although a lot of that has changed today, it's still pretty wide, right? But, um, James, we have to take a little break right now, but we're going to come right back with James Rosebush, Senior Advisor to President Reagan and Chief of Staff to Nancy Reagan, First Lady, right after this. Hang on. All right, we're back with James Rosebush. He's in Washington, D.C. with Growth Strategy. And uh, where do we leave off, uh, James? We were talking about... um, Growing You're up in about my life in Michigan, uh, Michigan, and then <laughs> Illinois, and then you went off to, yeah. to BU, Boston University, right? And uh, that's a great town. You must have loved Boston. I went to school there. It's a just a superior town there. It is a lot of a lot of students. So then, after college, obviously, um, did you have any uh, visions of working in politics, or uh, what happened after you got, you got your MBA, right? Well, I was always very interested in the intersection of business, 
and public issues or politics, public policy. So this is basically where my life sits. Is right at this intersection. In fact, I'm starting a new investment fund called the Intersection Fund. But mm-hmm. this is exactly my. I've always been fascinated with what is happening in the public sector, and what also you might say also how the business community or the investment community can really address some of those needs. And one of the most exciting things is going on right now that I was involved with very early on is now called social impact investing. But you see with millennials today and mm-hmm. all the $41 trillion shift of wealth from wealth creators and baby boomers to millennials, millennials are very impatient. And they want to address and they want to solve quickly and effectively and with impact. They want to solve all the problems that we're assaulted with mm-hmm. every day from around the world. And uh, I guess this is – I was sort of an early uh, adopter of that. It's something I was always committed to, and I had the opportunity through my involvement with, with philanthropy to address a lot of uh, public issues, and some of them had to do with uh, education reform. I, I've been involved in starting four different schools. I felt that how do we um, really use – the resources that we have from an investment standpoint, from a philanthropic standpoint, to address these pressing social needs that we have, uh, as opposed to having or expecting the government to do it. So just to go back to the things that I was involved with early on, I always felt this, you know, living, living not so much on the edge, but in the intersection of where the public sector and the private sector meet, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense to you, uh, Joe. Well, sure. It, it does. Um, uh, did, did President Reagan get um, a lot of pushback on private sector initiatives? Because I know that was a really unique concept at the time. Obviously, it's a precursor to social impact investing. But I'm just curious how, how smooth that was or wasn't. You got it. It's exactly a precursor of it. And did he get pushback? Well, is there any politician that doesn't get pushback? Well, of course. <laughs> uh, I, I think that he got pushback from perhaps some people who thought that he was trying to replace the the social net or the you know taking care of people in, in true need by simply saying well you know this can be done by the private mm-hmm. sector because in in large part one, in one of the first events that I hosted for the president was uh, to have the heads of a number of foundations and companies come in and talk about how they could do more mm-hmm. to address the need in the private sector well I think there were times that the president was criticized for saying, well, you know, you can address the pressing needs of any community by just having the private sector and to have private sector philanthropy address these needs. That wasn't really what he was saying. He was saying that uh, there's no doubt that the government needs to be there as, as a fallback for people that don't have any other resources or where the private sector can't go in and meet these needs. But he was saying it can be done so much more effectively by the private sector. And I'll give you a concrete example. We worked very closely with a man named James Rouse, who was a very successful uh, real estate developer, built a lot of uh, urban malls, kind of the precursor of malls being entertainment spaces. Mm -hmm. And he developed ways to build uh, low-cost housing. And this is at a time when people were finally recognizing that you build these tall towers of uh, housing for people, and you, you, you 
stack them, you know, floor after floor, uh, and the living conditions become untenable. Mm-hmm. And in both St. Louis and Chicago had very notable large public housing proje- uh, projects brought down at that time. So we asked Jim Rouse to develop a more livable solution at a cost that the government and the private sector could afford. And, you know, he did that uh, very effectively and began to sort of set a model for how it could be done better by forging these these links between the public and private sector. So that was the kind of stuff that Ronald Reagan loved. And, and he was, in fact, you know, a very small-time philanthropist himself. He would uh, he was fascinated by finding out about people's hardship, and he would go off and he would make a private telephone call. And there was one one person who said, uh, "Well, I had three three phone calls from a man who said he was Ronald Reagan, and I hung up on him two two or three times before I actually <laughs> believed that it was the White House calling." And finally, you know, the president wanted to find out how he was doing and and how he could be helpful. And then Reagan would often write small checks in his own hand and have his secretary send them off to these people. And the and he did that a lot. But, of course, I always said that the joke about that is, and I've had the president write checks to me as well, uh, not, not to help me out, but maybe to reimburse me for something that I happened to buy for him. And, of course, no one wants to cash a check it has the president's <laughs> signature on it. So you, Depends how much it's for, I think. Some people's homes, you'll see a framed check. It could be signed by Bill Clinton or, you know, but it mm-hmm. never gets cashed. Uh, but in all seriousness, this really represented the heart and the, the character of the inner man, Ronald Reagan, who didn't really expose himself or explain himself too well. Uh, but these are the things that I had the opportunity to see, uh, in part because of working on this particular program. Mm-hmm. But so after college, I'm just wondering the, your path to the White House. I mean, how did you uh, connect all those dots? Or it's kind of an, always an interesting. Um, yeah, and specifically, I'm interested in how you wound up in the family office world. I'm actually inside of a multifamily office, sort of serving as a concierge, for lack of a better term. And, and most people don't even know that that world exists. So I'm curious how you wound up in that space. Okay, so you asked me two good questions, how I ended up in the White House and uh, how I ended up in the family office world. I, I think that uh, to take the first one, which was the earlier um, opportunity I had, um, I grew up in a town where uh, there was basically, well, there were a handful of family offices uh because of the wealth that was created through General Motors mm-hmm. um, in the first part of the last century. So I was aware of these, and through relationships that my family had, I was given the opportunity to go and work in in two of them in particular, two families that had been involved in the creation of General Motors. And this was something that, you know, it's not something that when I was a teenager I thought, well, I'm going to go and work in the family office business or, or philanthropy or one or another aspects of these. But I think that it was uh, just an opportunity. I think this probably happens to a lot of people, maybe their first job or an early job that they have. If it really resonates with who they are as, as a person and their values, then 
uh, what a wonderful blessing that is. Mm-hmm. You know, not not everyone finds their career mm-hmm. that way. Um, in terms of the White House, the the road to the White House, I think that if if I look back on it, it seems to me in particular because of what I did in the White House. You know, when I was asked to go work in the White House, um, I, I, I said, you know, very ignorantly, I, I said, well, that might be interesting. I was kind of reserved about it. I, I don't know. I think I was crazy. But um, <laughs> I, I said, well, what would you like me to do? <laughs> and and I, I think they were a little bit dumbfounded because there were so many – there were thousands of people who wanted jobs in the White House, particularly at that time, because there was a big sea change from Carter to Reagan. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of conservatives that were – and, of course, I, I was among them, but there were a lot of conservatives who really wanted to go work in the White House. And so I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, you figure that out. And so I went back and I thought to myself, well, what what can I do uniquely from my background and my, my passions and my interest and my experience and my skill set that would be most valuable to this particular White House? And so I, I called them back and I said, well, I think working with the business community and in, in philanthropy and so forth w- would be a good place for me. So they carved out a position for me. And that was very unique again because um, because of my background and the things that I had done coming into the White House, this was very useful then to Ronald Reagan because this was a part of his platform and this was something that he really wanted to accomplish. And because of my work in family offices, becoming chief of staff to Nancy Reagan was a natural as well because folk, you know, functioning as a chief of staff to someone of influence, of political prominence or wealth and so forth, you know, you 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 know, you you learn these skills um, let's, to let's, to be able to really serve them in the right way. And James, and, I, I apologize, but uh, let's hold that suspense because we have we're coming up on our next break right now. But uh, we'll we'll pick up right with that right after our break uh, with James Rosebush. He'll be out here May 9th with LifeLoungeSD.com. And stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right, we're back with the second half of the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life, and now it's time for Richard to thank our sponsors. Big thank you to our sponsors, as always. UBS, Mr. Michael Carancha and Drew Friedis. Couldn't do it without UBS. Two of our favorite CPAs on the planet, Jason Kruger with Signature Analytics, the best CFO service here on the West Coast. Also, more traditional CPAs up in San Marcos, Polito Epic CPAs. They survived tax season with great style, as they always do. Polito Epic CPAs. Carl Scheeler with Berkeley Research Group, by far and away the best business valuation and risk mitigation firm here in the country, helping business owners improve the values of their businesses. Speaking of making money, cost segregation initiatives with Joel Grushkin, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. Brenda Geiger, and law offices of Brenda Geiger, back from a great vacation in Thailand. Brenda specializes in asset protection planning and estate planning. We may not have an estate tax pretty soon because the House just voted it down a couple days ago. It's not going to pass, though, anytime soon, that elimination. Anyway, California Republic Bank and Lane Elliott serving wealthy families and family offices and their very unique banking needs at California Republic Bank. Hub International, also known as Mars Maddox Insurance, by far and away the best employee benefits firm I have ever run into. An upcoming guest, Paul Hines with Hearthstone Wealth Management and the End Financial Elder Abuse Alliance. Paul will be coming up here in about a month and a half. Looking forward to that. The Lombardi Group and the LG Experience, helping wealth advisors make 
heroes out of CPAs to the CPA's very best clients. Got a great event coming up in June with the LG Experience. More on that later. And last but not least, yes, indeed, I and a couple of my business partners are bringing professional women's tennis back to San Diego Thanksgiving week. Running alongside my Oceanside Turkey Trot will be the Carlsbad Classic. Please check out cldclassic.com. And a big thanks to Courtney Lover and PopX Graphics for doing such a tremendous job on our website where our listeners can find out what, Mr. Joe Vecchio? Well, they can find out more about our sponsors if they just get, get over to iymoney.com, get their cursor over to the Sponsor tab. There's a drop-down menu there. They can click on any one or all of them to learn more about their professional backgrounds, their contact information. And I know they've all been working with you for many, many years with great success. Right, Richard? Many, many years. In some cases, almost 30. And by the way, check out the website in a couple of days because before scooting over here for this this um, very f- interesting and fun discussion. I was interviewed on KCBQ AM 1170. I'm Ooh. not supposed to say that I on this channel, say those ba- those, but that that that, that post will be up there here in a day or two. No four letter words. I know on no show, four letter words. <laughs> anyway, James, getting back. Well, well, speaking of relationships and collaborations, well, I, wrote, I, wrote, yes. I wrote down three words, James, when you were talking. They are, and Joe just said two of them: relationships, collaboration, and the third word is leadership. So let's start with relationships. You've basically, you've basically touched on all of these three. If the I want to become chief of staff about. to the first lady, what do I have to do, James? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're right. I think you, you have to know what, you're, what you love, mm-hmm. what you love to do. And what, what is your, your call? Every, everyone, regardless of what your, your job is, you, you have, everyone has a mission. Uh, regardless of the the level of of apparent seriousness or compensation, or uh, you know, we all need to think of ourselves as that way. So, what happened to me in terms of this incredible opportunity that that I had in, in terms of working in the White House? I had previous to this work, I had been uh, managing a, a foundation that. A lot of the work that we did was through advisors and consultants, and one of the consulting firms that we hired was from Los Angeles, and they turned out to be the firm that also managed Ronald Reagan's campaign. Ah. So I became friendly with and maintained a relationship with these individuals, not because I knew that it was going to lead to anything like this, but um, in, in fact, I, I didn't even know at that point that Ronald Reagan was, was going to uh, win the election, but uh, because of the relationship that I had of uh, trust and the work that we had done together with these individuals, they were the ones then, after they ran the Reagan campaign and after his victory, they invited, they were the ones who called me and invited me to work in the White House because they were aware of the the quality of my work and, and my interests and, and my dedication and, of course, my support of uh, of the president in his campaign. And uh, my wife and I were invited to attend one of the uh, presidential debates, happened to be in Cleveland, where I was living at the time working for the Standard Oil Company. And um, I was nothing but you know, more and more interested in in the president because mm-hmm. of that and because of his platform. And, of course, I, I supported him uh, and so I, it was through that relationship mm-hmm. uh, and the relationship with those individuals. And I, I think that showing curiosity and interest in developing relationships, whether you know where it's going to lead or not, it, it's, it's a very important thing to do. But it should be something that's natural. It mm-hmm. comes out of the curiosity we have 
in other people, um, their points of view, their experience, and so forth. And I've just always been interested in in, in people in that way. Well, it's people skills. I'm in one of your columns. I know uh, everyone out there should know that you write a weekly column for BusinessInsider.com on strategy and 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 things along those lines. And you you told one story about uh, I guess you were in a company and someone uh, had it out for you for whatever reason for about a year, and uh, you just exhibited poise and kept doing your job well. And ultimately, uh, that person came to apologize to you, but. I guess a lot of it's like grace under pressure and people skills, and a lot of these things you don't learn in, in grad school, right? You know, I, and I had a column on that as well. There probably there are more things that you don't learn, for example, in business school, than you do learn on the job. And a lot of that has to do with interpersonal relations, mm-hmm. the emotions that come into play in, in, the work, in the workforce and the experience that you're referring to was an individual who felt that, uh, you know, he wanted to be very competitive with me and he wanted to put me at a disadvantage. So he was using all every everything that he possibly could do to discredit me. And there wasn't a lot that I could do because for me to fight back and to try and discredit him just was not going to work. And it's also not my style. Mm-hmm. So I just had to keep doing what I did and and be as honest as possible with as much integrity as I possibly could. And eventually, after about a year, this individual came around and he actually had tears in his eyes and and he asked me, you know, what if I would be able to to find a way to forgive him Hmm. for what he had done to me. And I, I think, you know, it's an experience I'll never forget because in a competitive environment, and as I say, in in an academic setting or business school or where, junior college, wherever you're going to school, they don't really teach you how to deal Mm-mm. with situations like that. Yeah. And in, in business or the nonprofit world or where, whatever the workplace is, is a tremendous amount of competition, well, in, in, yeah. especially today. Well, there's IQ and then there's EQ, right? Emotional um, intelligence. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I so, think that's very important. Yeah, they don't teach you that. Yeah, but I, mean, I agree. I think if you're good at asking questions and listening, it really puts you ahead. And being respectful, right? Right. Well, I had a, a column recently uh, which was titled uh, What I Learned About Effective Communication. I think it was from through my conversations with Queen Elizabeth. Mm. And um, <laughs> it evoked a lot of interest. There were a lot of readers of that column, which really intrigued me. Uh, I think a lot because there's so much interest in royalty. But in the, the quite a few times that I had an opportunity to talk with uh, the Queen of England, James, let's hold one, of the, yeah, one we, of the most durable heads of state. Uh, yeah, I want to use that as a, as a uh, cliffhanger so people will stay until uh, after the break. So we're going to talk about your conversations with the Queen of England right after this commercial message. Hang on. <laughs> All right, we're riding into the home stretch. You remember that song, James Bonanza? What a great, oh yeah, great tune. You know the band that played the backup music, Joe? Well, anyway. that, was, well that was Tommy Tedesco exactly. playing, doing the guitar on that. But yeah. uh, anyway, we're in the home stretch with James, and we left off where he had uh, some encounters with the Queen of England, Elizabeth II. I take it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what? What did you and, you and you wrote a column about your encounters with her? So what, what tricks in the, of the trade did she teach you? Here's a woman who. 
has to meet and has met you know probably millions of people in her very long reign and with all the responsibilities that she had so there were a number of times both in England and in the US uh in particular when she made a week long state visit to California <laughs> uh where I had this extraordinary opportunity to have conversations with her but we were told that according to protocol with royalty you never approach uh, you never approach the queen and you never start a conversation yourself and because of that and because of the fact that she's very aware of this protocol as well she has honed her skills in showing curiosity and interest in other people mm -hmm. so uh for example one night she took 23 of us out for dinner at a trader vic's in <laughs> san francisco and I remember her coming up to me several times with conversations that she started, um, they, and they were masterful. And she was obviously very well briefed, but you couldn't do this even from the standpoint of being well briefed. You, you had to have this innate interest in people and the kind of grace that she had. So mm -hmm. I had arranged for her to receive from the American people a computer from Hewlett Packard, and I arranged for her to go visit. Uh, the Hewlett-Packard uh, corporate headquarters while they were in the Bay Area. So she she came up to me and she said, um, Jim, let's talk about this computer and how we should use it and tell me about the different applications of this computer and uh, just engaged me. She knew how to engage the people that she went up to talk to. Another another time that evening, she came up to me and she said, "What what's in that drink that you know?" And, and Trader <laughs> Vicks was famous oh, for their a bit of the rum, you know, their <laughs> exotic drinks with little umbrellas and all that sort of thing. Ew. So from small talk to <laughs> things of, of greater substance, she had this extraordinary ability to show curiosity and interest in the other person. And this is, I see a big deficit of this today. I, I see that, I think, in part, for a lot of different reasons, and social media is is one of them, but people don't seem to have the skill or the, the interest, number one, the interest or the curiosity, uh, and then the skill to simply uh, engage other people. You know, tell me about your life. Tell me about, and you guys are great on, on this radio show because you, you. you're highly skilled at it, but really pulling out from other people because you're genuinely interested. Tell me what you think about this issue or mm -hmm. tell me about your background or, well, you know, this yeah, sort of thing. And I find a real deficit, yeah. especially among millennials well, on this issue. But doesn't, doesn't that skill become critical when you are having difficult conversations or tough negotiations, which, I mean, President Reagan had to do that all the time, have tough negotiations and discussions. But you know what? He, I remember this. He, uh, I mean, you can bear, bear this out, James. Uh, he said, you know, uh, Tip O'Neill and I, we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but after 5 o'clock, we would have a few, we were friends after 5 o'clock. Right, but, but I mean, the skill you're describing, you're building trust, even if you don't necessarily agree on things. Correct. I will tell you that Ronald Reagan was a person who had no enmity toward anyone. He might have disagreed with people, and he was had very strongly held points mm -hmm. of view, but he didn't he didn't hate anyone. You know, he left the White House the exact same man he went in, and mm -hmm. he was a completely guileless person. He didn't he didn't hold any any. It was never retribution. It was never revenge. It was never working from the standpoint of well, uh, a personal. Um, enmity towards anyone. It, it, he just he didn't have that as a part of his character. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and he, he didn't 
he didn't have a, a temper or you know he didn't get angry about uh, to to an, another individual so it was um fascinating to to watch and to observe a person who was both a strong leader and at the same time didn't have those kinds of mercurial personality traits so uh, i began to appreciate reagan uh because i thought how can this person go through and and work on and from a sweeping you know he was a sweeping strategist he knew mm-hmm. from the beginning that his mission as president was really to help rid the world of communism and to promote freedom and democracy wherever he could that that was his mission and he knew it and he had a strategy for it even though he never said to the media in these terms well this is my strategy to bring down the Soviet Empire. This is my strategy. To the, he he had this strategy all along. He had it um, in, in his. You know, it was just a part of of his his character mm-hmm. and and his personality. But he kept a lot of it hidden, and that has made him a difficult person to write about for a lot of biographers. Uh, he didn't talk about it. He he grew up in the old-fashioned sense uh, where you didn't talk about yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is both a plus and a negative because as a politician, and perhaps has gotten too far this way, um, you do need to define your yourself, especially through the media, through the lens of the media, to the public. But Reagan wasn't comfortable with that. So, you know, it was an admirable trait from the standpoint of of his character, but it was probably a flaw in terms of his political nature because you do have to define yourself. Now I say it's kind of swung the other direction, and it's all about self-promotion. Everything well, you talk about on your LinkedIn page, on your website, it's all about well, who you are and yeah. you know what you do that's great and all that sort of thing. Reagan was a different kind of leader. Yeah. All I remember is trust but verify. That was great. And, um, James, it's been such a pleasure speaking James, with really you. James, really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you out in San Diego May 9th. If you folks get over to lifeloungesd.com, you could find out where that will be. You can meet James and ask him more about uh, the president and first lady. And uh, anyway, uh, Richard, always great to see you. Justin Hart, our sound engineer, thanks for uh, making us sound great. Thanks to Craig Blanke, our account executive, who will be, be back from Italy soon, and to Dave Sniff, our programming genius here at KFMB. You have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. iwaymoney.com for all these podcasts. Good night now. <laughs>